The reading today is from Exodus 13:17 to Exodus 14:31, and it's on page 106 in the Church Bibles. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Harahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephron. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The, Israelite, uh, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haheroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't you say, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh 
and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, "'Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt.' Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. Thanks for reading, Ruth, and good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. If we haven't met before, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church only. And I'm here today with my, my life jacket and my fishing gear because as we start today, I want to tell you that I love the sea. I love doing things on the sea. I love going fishing. That's why I've got my fishing rod here. I love going sailing or kayaking or doing all those sorts of things out on the sea. But There's one thing about the sea, and I think it's part of the reason why I like it. The sea is exciting, isn't it? It's exciting because it's also just a little bit dangerous. So if you go out in a tiny little tinny, it doesn't take much before you're really thankful that you've got your life jacket on. It doesn't take much in a change in the weather. Well, once I was um, stand-up paddleboarding in a town called Warrnambool out on the sea, and I was standing on top of my board, and I looked down and I saw a shadow move under my board. And it swam off and then started to come back round. And as it came back round, it rose up. Unfortunately, as it got closer, I could see that it was a giant ray, not a shark. But it's still pretty scary being out on the sea, isn't it? And I want you to think about the scariness of the sea and the unpredictability of the sea. And this morning, I want you to think about the sea as, as almost being a place of, of kind of chaos. It's a difficult place. You might remember just a a few weeks back, there was a a news article about a a man called Elliot Foote and his mates. They were having a surfing holiday. They they were out in Indonesia and to get to their surfing spot, 
uh, they jumped into a few wooden boats. And Elliot Foote and his girlfriend and two other mates got into a small wooden boat and they took off across the sea. When they left, it was bright sunshine, not much wind. But an hour into their journey, the weather changed and their boat sank. And they spent 36 hours floating in the sea waiting to get picked up. When Elliot was picked up, he sent his dad a text message, the most underrated text message in history, they say. He said, hey, Dad, I'm alive, I'm safe, love you, and I'll chat later. 36 hours floating in the sea. The seas are a chaotic place. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Indeed, in the Bible, I think the sea is often used to represent the idea of chaos. Think back with me to the creation story. Remember how that, how that story starts? God is hovering over the waters. It's formless. And God brings that chaos into control, firstly, by gathering the waters together. And so I want to suggest to you today that it's no accident that God chose to save Israel by by taking them through a sea. I want you to see this point. This is how God demonstrates his mastery and his, his power and his supremacy. In fact, I want you to see this morning, this is how we see today, how we see God's glory. This wonderful journey of salvation that involves crossing a sea from one side to another. From death at one side to life on another. Today, Ruth read to us the great event in the nation of Israel. But I hope this morning you'll see there's also a lot for us to learn in this passage as well. Now I'm getting warm, so I'm going to take my life jacket off before we go any further. Now here's what, here's what I want you to see today. If you've got your leaflet there, I want you to see two, two big ideas that we'll uh, unpack from our passage today. The first of those is I want you to see God's glory in this passage. Because I think his glory is well and truly on display for us to see. And the second thing I want us to see as we work our way through this story is that Israel is being saved. Israel is going from death to life. And I want you to see that this sets up a pattern for our own salvation. So just two main points today. I want us to see God's glory and I want us to see the pattern of our own salvation being worked out in this uh, part of the Bible. If you haven't already done so, please, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. We have, of course, skipped over most of 13, so let me just uh, update you as to where we are in this story, if it's been a while since you looked at this passage. We have had by this stage the 10 plagues, the, the firstborn children who were not protected by the blood of the Passover lamb have at this point in the story already died, and Pharaoh has let the Israelites go. Towards the end of chapter 13, we saw, as Ruth read, that, that God has very deliberately, hasn't he, led the Israelites out of Egypt, not via the shortest route, but instead he's directed them towards the sea, and they've camped at this place called Pihiroth, which is near the sea, we are told. And I want you to keep seeing that this is because God is going to do something with the sea. He's very deliberate about this. His plan to save his people is going to involve the sea. I'll come down to verse 4 of chapter 14 and let me read that verse to you. This is what it says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart 
and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, maybe at this point in the story, Pharaoh is under the illusion that Israel was only going to leave for a few days. I mean, that is kind of what they had been saying to him. But now, with a hardened heart, he sets out in pursuit of Israel. And I want you to remember that that Pharaoh and his army at this time, they are the superpower of the world, and he has the most advanced military, therefore, of the time. And he takes with him his latest military technology, he takes with him the very best chariots, and off he goes after Israel. Now, don't forget, by this point in the story, God has already unleashed the ten plagues on the Egyptians, the blood, the frogs, the boils, the darkness, the death of the firstborn. What more can God do? you might be wondering. And once you see the answer has to do with the sea, that thing of chaos. Remember over the last few weeks, Jack and I have been suggesting to you that the plagues have a component in them of God undoing created order. And we see the same thing happening here in this part of the story. In verse 15, God tells Moses to raise his staff and stretch out his hand over the sea to divide the water. And it's a bit like the creation event all over again. God gathering the waters together. And it must have been mesmerizing to see, I think. And yet the glory of God comes, I want you to see, not just through this amazing event of God parting the waters of the sea, but also through the destruction of the Egyptians. You see that there? I think it's hard for us to read, but it's worth seeing. Come down with verse 17 and, and look at this with me. It says in verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. And when we read this story uh, with the staff team, we, we were reminding each other that it, it kind of feels like at this point, like we were watching a movie like Saving Private Ryan or Gallipoli or something along those lines, because when the Israelites are delivered, while they cross over, the Egyptians perish. And this is a story in which we read about dead Egyptian soldiers washing up on the seashore. And yet, as terrible as that is, at least in part, this is how God's glory is shown. This is how his glory is revealed in his power and his might and in his victory. And I think at this point in the story, we're supposed to kind of think back to some of those other events that have happened so far in the Bible up until this point. We're supposed to think back to things like the the flood in Genesis with Noah. Do you remember that? Back then with that flood, it was like creation was again being undone. The people had turned their backs on the creator God and so God was using creation to judge them. Back then, the waters covered the face of the earth. Creation was in chaos. And here in Exodus, we again see people turning their backs on God and we see God, the creator, using a creation-like event to bring their destruction. And I think as we read this, we are supposed to recoil a little bit. This is a kind of terrible story at one level, but even more than the terribleness, I think we are supposed to see the glory of God. 
We're supposed to see how powerful God is. Powerful even at a cosmic creation type level. Pharaoh's magicians, they could, they could do a few tricks, couldn't they? We saw that earlier on in Exodus. But here God parts a sea and then closes it at will on top of an army. On top of the army of the most mighty nation at the time. And the story, you might know, has come a full circle by this point, hasn't it? Remember Pharaoh right at the start of Exodus? A different Pharaoh to this one. But that Pharaoh ordering the drowning of the Israelite boys. And then there was Moses who was saved in an ark just like Noah. And here the flood destroys the Egyptian army. They don't have an ark. And they all die. And in this story, we see again and again, we see the glory and the power of God. Now, I, I want to just suggest to you this morning, is, is your view of God, is it big enough to include a God who does this sort of work? Or is your view of God too sanitized or, or too small? I, I hope this story is an antidote to the idea of having too small a view of God. Because this, this story shows his power and his glory. And reading this story, I think we are supposed to go, wow, look how powerful our God is. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is also about God's power over the sea. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is in a boat. I'm sure you know this story pretty well. He's in a boat with his disciples. He's asleep and a furious storm rages on around them. The boat's about to be swamped and to sink. And so the disciples, in desperation, they wake Jesus and they say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And what happens? Jesus stands up and he speaks. He says, Quiet, be still. And the waves die down and the wind calms down. And Mark tells us that the disciples who see this, they are terrified. And they ask, who is this, they say, even the wind and the waves obey him. I think the disciples at this point, their view of Jesus is too small. They see him just as a man, but he's God and he's powerful and he's glorious and he's in control of creation, he's in control of the weather and he's in control of us and our destiny and our eternity. And so as we read through Exodus, I want you to keep seeing our God is a big God, a glorious God. And I want to encourage you to make sure that your view of God is big enough. And next time you're on your way down to Glenelg or you're standing there, just look out at the sea and think, what would it take for dry ground to be parted between Glenelg and Stansbury or somewhere over that way? How powerful would it be if that could happen? And yeah, that's what our God has done. But see the glory of God in, the, in this story. That's, that's point one in your leaflet today. I want to move on to point two next. We've seen the glory of God. And I move on to point two in our leaflet. And I want to say here that I'm really indebted, deeply indebted to Tim Keller for his work and his insight into this passage. Pretty much everything I have to say from here onward comes from Tim Keller, although the missteps that I make are my own, not his. Um, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the redemption of Israel, the crossing of the sea, comes from a pattern of salvation 
that is also used for our own redemption. Uh, I'll try and show you what I mean. Um, sometimes in the holidays, Meredith uh, gets out her sewing machine and um, she grabs one of these from the cupboard. I don't know very much about this, but I know what's inside these. There are drawings, patterns that she then lays out on top of material and uses to cut out the pieces of material. The pattern can be traced onto all different sorts of fabric. You can use the pattern time and time again. And in this case, a 50s-style skirt, if you use this pattern, you'll make lots and lots of 50s-style skirts that are all roughly the same, but are all slightly different, depending on the fabric you use and that kind of stuff. And I want you to see that we see in the salvation of Israel a pattern that can help us understand our own salvation. I want to suggest that Israel's redemption will help us understand how God has been at work saving us as people today. Now, it's a pattern. That doesn't mean that we can strip the verses here out of their context and just apply them to our own life exactly as we might want to. So, for example, if you look in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 14, it says this, The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Now, let's not misunderstand what I mean by a pattern here. So, I don't know about you. You may not be in a dispute at the moment, and that's the case. Terrific. But perhaps you are in a dispute with somebody at the moment. Maybe it's over the colour of your fence that you're disputing with your neighbour or something like that. Don't misunderstand this passage. This passage does not mean that God will fight that battle for you and all you need to do is be still. That's not what this is saying, I don't think. But what I am suggesting is there's lots we can learn from this event. I want, to see, I want you to see two things two things that come from Tim Keller, but two things that I think are here. The first is, is that the crossing over of the sea is a movement for us too from death to life. And I also want you to see that the crossing of the sea is made possible not because of our own action, but because of what our God is like. I think one of the greatest things that we can learn from this pattern idea in Exodus is that it involves a real physical movement in Exodus, doesn't it? The salvation of Israel involved them crossing a sea. They walked from one side to the other side. It's concrete and it's real and it's tangible. A physical movement from one side of the sea to the other. There was also a journey, wasn't it then, from death through to life. For the Israelites, on one side of the sea... They were in a place where their future involved either a return to slavery or maybe death. And when they crossed over that sea, they ended up in a place of life and freedom. Let me show you this. Have a look in the text with me. Once Pharaoh learns that the Israelites are not coming back, he sets out with his armies and he's chasing Israel. And in verse 9, he gets there, doesn't he? He overtakes them. And there's no doubt about what this means for Israel. Either it's a return to slavery... Or death. And so in verse 11, the Israelites say to Moses, they say, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So here's the thing, here's what I want you to see. Where they are at the moment on that the side of the sea when they haven't crossed over yet, 
They're alive only there because God is acting as a barrier. But can you see this is a place of death and a place of slavery and a place of entrapment for them? And what happens? Well, we know the story quite well. God parts the sea and the Israelites cross over as on dry ground. Verse 21, it says this, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on the left. And the Egyptians pursue them, but God thwarts the Egyptian journey and they end up stuck on the sea floor. And then in verse 28, we read, The water flowed back and and covered the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. It's such an incredible story. This morning, I just want you to see the pattern here of salvation that involves crossing from a place of death and enslavement, crossing over or crossing through to a place of life. And for the Israelites, remember, this was that that tangible journey, a physical walk that they had to do, a movement from death through to life. And for those of you this morning who believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, I want you to see that this is our story as well. In our journey, it's not one where we walk from one side to the other. Our journey is a spiritual one. But I want you to see that the pattern is just as real for us, just as profound for us. See, we were enslaved to sin and we were dead in our transgressions and we have crossed over into life. Now, we didn't do that through walking through the sea, did we? But, but our salvation, our crossing of the sea comes through belief and through faith in Jesus. But I want you to see the journey is just as real. The result is just as profound. We've moved from death and we've moved to life. Let me show you this in the, in the New Testament. Come with me, if you will, to John chapter 5, verse 24. John chapter 5, uh, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Crossed over from death to life. You see the pattern that sits behind this? And here's why I think this is so helpful for us today. I reckon sometimes it doesn't feel like we've crossed over. Sometimes it doesn't feel like our enemy, sin, has been drowned in the sea. Now maybe it's just me speaking here, maybe this is just how I feel. But I know with my head that I've been saved, and yet it's harder sometimes to grasp that down in here. It's a hard thing to know that I've crossed over. To know I'm no longer enslaved to sin. To feel that way because I know at the same time that I'm prone to wander. And I'm not yet fully what I will be one day. 
And I suggest this is what makes, this is why the pattern is so helpful. See, salvation for the Israelites involved a physical journey from one side to the other. And I want you to see that our journey is just as real. Even if it doesn't feel like that sometimes. Objectively, we've crossed from death over to life. Just like the Israelites were dead on one side of the sea. And on the other side, they're saved. So it is for us, if we trust in Jesus, if we have faith in him, we've made it from one side to the other. And although it may not always feel like it, we are seen on the other side by God as holy and blameless and without fault. We've crossed over. Now someone's just around the corner weather like today is showing us that and the beach I think is in the future of a few of us next time you're walking across the sand I'd love you to remember that truth that we have crossed over that we too although our physical journey has not been one where we've walked on dry ground from one side of the sea to another that is our reality we have crossed over from death to life once you remember that your salvation is as real and as tangible as the salvation of Israel And it's all made possible, isn't it? Because it's God who does the saving. Come back with me to the pattern that we see in Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses, uh, this is verse 13 of Exodus 14. Moses answered the people. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. When you see here in the passage, the Israelites don't have to do anything other than to be still at this point, do they? It's God who's going to work on their behalf. He's the one who acts. He's the one who obscures the Egyptian army. He's the one who all night long sends that strong easterly wind that drives back the sea. Let me suggest, what do the Israelites contribute to their salvation at this point? Nothing, do they? All they have to do is, is walk across as if on dry ground. It's God who parts the sea. It's God's action. And God alone who saves Israel. I mean, remember the Israelites, they are as good as dead at this point when they're on the wrong side of the sea, aren't they? The most powerful nation of their time with their military technology right at the ready, right next to them. They are dead. And yet God delivers them. Does that sound familiar to you today? I would suggest it's the pattern at work for us. Do you see that? Uh, another New Testament passage for you to think through today. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Many of you will know this well. This is what it says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God not by works. So that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 and Exodus 14, pretty similar, aren't they? See the pattern of God at work here? Israel is saved by the mercy and by the grace of God. It's his act alone, entirely God's doing. The Israelites were as good as dead without God. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Can you see how Israel's exodus helps us to see 
how God has been at work saving us today? Do we contribute to our salvation? Well, the pattern would suggest that it's no more so than the Israelites contributed to the parting of the sea. Now, Tim Keller makes a point here that I think is really useful for us, and I'm going to um, try and tell you about as uh, similarly as Tim Keller does. He says, some will read these passages and say, well, well our contribution then is, is having faith. Our contribution is to do with our faith. And the danger here is that we will start to see our faith as being something that we control or that the quality of our faith makes a difference at this point. And here's what Tim Keller says. He says, Imagine the Israelites walking through the sea, a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. Just imagine what that was like for a moment. As I do that, I think I'm kind of walking through like one of those aquarium tunnels, you know, seeing the fish in the walls of the sea. I think it would be amazing. And as they're walking through that dry ground, think about how the Israelites are behaving. Tim Keller suggests that some of them would have been marvelling at God's amazing work. They'd be saying things like, isn't our God amazing? Look at the walls of water. Isn't our God powerful? We have the best God, praise him. And yet at the same time, the same group of people, but maybe a few rows back in the queue going through, maybe that person saying, please God, don't let me die. Please God, I haven't learned to swim yet. Please God, keep those walls there. Terrified as they walk through. Different qualities of faith. And yet here's the thing, both the one with the great faith and the one with the lesser faith, they both, both cross over, don't they? They both get from death through to life. And this is what Tim Keller says, that is because the quality of our faith is not what matters, but rather the quality of the one in whom we place our faith. That's what matters. Here we see a pattern for our salvation. The same for us today, isn't it? Okay, we've covered a lot of ground this morning. I hope you can leave here today with two things clear in your mind. Now, the first is that the Exodus is a wonderful demonstration of God's power and of his might. We see this, don't we, in his dominion over Egypt. We see his power over the created world as well. And though these things are terrible on one hand, they're also magnificent in another way. And through them we see the glory of God. And I want you to just to be thinking, is your view of God big enough this morning? Do you have a big enough view of God to see him as someone who can separate the waters and reveal his glory in the death of the Egyptians? And secondly, we see in this passage, I think, how Exodus functions as a pattern for how God saves people. And I want you to see it's a pattern that applies to our life today. Because if you trust in Jesus, if you believe, here's what I want you to know. You two have crossed over from death to life. It might not be quite as tangible as walking through a sea, but that movement, that change is as real and as profound. And it's made possible, isn't it, through the grace of our Lord Jesus. We pray that we keep knowing these things and keep living them out. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to praise you this morning for 
your glory, for your power, for your might, for your dominion over the created world. We thank you for this story that reveals your strength and your control and your sovereignty. We want to thank you for this story that shows us that you're a God who saves your people. We thank you that you're a God who is faithful to your promises. And we want to praise you this morning for taking us from death to life. We want to thank you that you've done this out of your faithfulness and your mercy and your grace. As a wonderful act of compassion for us. And so we praise you for that. Amen.